The Dance Edit podcast is brought to you by Jackrabbit Dance. Jackrabbit is the industry's most reliable dance studio management software. If you're a studio owner, you know how important class management software is. Jackrabbit is going to make your life so much easier. Their software is cloud-based, powerful, and adaptable. And Jackrabbit has the industry's largest team of trainers, product coaches, and client success specialists to support you in your studio. You wouldn't accept less than the best from your students. Don't accept it from your software either. Visit jackrabbitdance.com and use the promo code DANCEMEDIA, all one word, for a free trial. Dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoin. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Magazine and Dance Spirit Magazine. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about the Washington Ballet's virtual gala, which involved what seemed like reasonable safety precautions, but was still followed by several COVID-19 infections. Uh, We'll be breaking down the ongoing bigger picture discussion about ways to make theaters safe for both dancers and audience members as the world continues to grapple with the pandemic. We will be reacting to Swan Lake Bath Ballet, which is a quarantine-inspired film that, like so much of the work coming out of lockdown, is both absurd and brilliant. And we'll be hearing from Eduardo Villaro, the artistic director and CEO of Ballet Hispanico. Uh, But first, here's your reminder to sign up for our daily newsletter, which is a one-minute read highlighting the top dance stories of the day. You can do that at thedanceedit.com. And also be sure to follow us on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit. And of course, to not just listen, but also subscribe to this very podcast on your listening platform of choice. And that sounds like a lot of homework, but it's not actually homework, I promise. These are all things that will spark joy um, if we do our jobs properly. Okay, housekeeping done. So we're going to start things off as usual with a dance headline rundown because there were quite a few newsworthy stories this past week that deserve a mention here. So Courtney, can you start us off? Sure thing. So at Ballet Memphis, Gretchen Wallert-McLennan has been appointed president and CEO, making her the first Black person to be hired to the position. Uh, She danced at the school and in the junior company and previously served as chairman of the board from 2014 to 2017. Also, I just want to say that as thrilled as I am about this news, and I'm I'm so happy for her, I am a little bit concerned um, about the fact that they're appointing the first Black president and CEO during a pandemic and during one of the most challenging times for dance. It just, I'm afraid there could be a bit of potential for this to be a glass cliff situation, but I, I hope that that is not the case, and I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens. Retweet. Retweet. The grassroots campaign hashtag Arts Hero is asking Americans who work in the arts to urge their senators to pass emergency arts relief legislation by August 1st. Um, we will link to information about the Arts Hero campaign in our episode description so you can participate. Uh, Meanwhile, in Russia, the Marinsky Theater is open once again, and the ballet was on stage for the first time in over three months last week with a gala-style program. Attendance was limited to 1,000 patrons, seated in a chessboard pattern, and they were all required to wear masks. And there is a new petition to rename Broadway's Longacre Theater in honor of Nick Cordero, and it has earned over 33,000 signatures. 
Uh, New York City Center announced programming for its Live at Home series. It'll include a weekly performance series by Ayodeli Cassell, who BT-dubs is on the cover of Dance Magazine's August issue. Uh, there's also a five-part series called Great American Ballerinas, which will showcase the likes of Tyler Peck, Misty Copeland, and Sarah Mearns. And it is the end of an era on Dancing with the Stars. Tom Bergeron and Aaron Andrews are leaving the show after 15 years and six years, respectively. And in a plot twist that I did not see coming, their replacement will be Tyra Banks, and she will also be co-executive producing the show. She's been getting more active in the dance world lately. Um, she recently collaborated with Michaela Taylor on Model Land, which is her experiential attraction. So it'll be interesting to see what she does as the new host. Yeah, which Tyra energy are we going to get on Dancing with the Stars? Or are we going to get all the Tyra energies? Stay tuned. Um, and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences officially ruled that the Hamilton film will not be eligible for the Oscars, unsurprising since there's been a rule barring film stage productions from eligibility since 1997. However, hashtag Hamilfilm is likely behind the recent spike in traffic at various theater streaming sites. But again, if Lin-Manuel Miranda wants that EGOT, he's going to have to wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Sorry. <laughs> Not sorry. <laughs> there it is. It's back in your brain. And um, unfortunately, uh, Julie Kent, the artistic director of the Washington Ballet, and of course, a longtime ballet icon, announced on Instagram that she has tested positive for COVID-19, but is recovering. We are really relieved to hear that Julie is recovering well. Um, but that last news item is actually our segue into our next segment, which is a look at a lightning rod of a story about the Washington Ballet's virtual gala. Um, the article, which ran in the Washington Post and was written by the paper's longtime dance critic Sarah Kaufman, came down very hard on the company after at least three people involved in the gala, which was streamed live on June 18th, became sick with COVID-19. Kent was one of those three people. Um, There's also one unidentified dancer and then co-chairwoman Ashley Bronksek. And this is a complicated story because the company did take what sounded like reasonable pandemic-related precautions during the event. Yeah, so it was, again, it was a virtual gala, but there were actually uh, live in-person elements in play. So it combined existing performance footage with live events streaming from the Washington Ballet's headquarters. So there was some dancing, the dancers were socially distanced, as well as other speaking scenes featuring dancers, gala chairs, and Kent. Here's the kicker. No one on camera wore masks. However, when they were off camera, everyone was wearing masks, being encouraged to wash their hands, practice social distancing. So from the sounds of it, except for those moments when they were on camera speaking or dancing, they were all taking every precaution that was theoretically needed in order to pull this off safely. Yeah. So the, one of the questions that the article raises that I think is worth pursuing is, if even dance events following relatively solid safety protocols result in people getting sick, what does that mean for live performances going forward? How are we going to be able to pull this off? And also the company's board chairwoman said that the decision to have some in-person interaction at the gala was due to sadness about not being ha uh, able to have the biggest fundraising event of the year in person. And they wanted to kind of keep some of that same that uh, energy, which also raises questions about whether the company felt in some way pressured to have this in-person event by high-profile donors or by the desire to generate interest to help bring in sorely needed funds during this crisis. Right. Are we seeing now the artists beholden to benefactors model at its most toxic? Is that part of what's going on here? It's, it's yeah, again, complicated. 
didn't think there was going to be another facet of why the United States funding model for uh, dance is broken broken and problematic. Like, I thought we'd seen every facet of it be highlighted by COVID. And oh, no, there was one more. Um, One of the things the article definitely gets right is that in this new COVID world, trust is one of a dance organization's most valuable assets, the trust of its dancers and also the trust of its audiences. How can they realistically build and preserve that trust so people on both sides of the curtain feel safe at dance performances again? Um, And that leads us into our next segment, which is a breakdown of the larger and continually evolving discussion about how to make not just virtual galas, but actual in-person theaters safe for both performing artists and audience members. Um, Several news stories this week talked about that issue from different perspectives. Dance Magazine did a sum up of the Roadmap for Recovery and Resilience for Theater, which is a just-released blueprint for reopening um, created by American Repertory Theater in collaboration with a Harvard scientist. We also heard about the Broadway League's infectious disease expert approving a new 15-second COVID test that might allow Broadway to reopen in early 2021, or so its president is saying. And finally, there was word that Actors' Equity would be allowing its members to perform in two live shows in August, both of which will have extensive safety protocols in place and could serve as models for the future if they're successful. So last summer, the director of American Repertory Theater, Diane Paulus, began working with Joseph Allen, who's an assistant professor of exposure assessment science at uh, the H.T. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard, Um, And he's also the head of Harvard's Healthy Buildings Program. And their goal was to design a safe, healthy theater. So by the time COVID hit, they were able to publish their findings in an online blueprint. And some of the highlights were uh, the importance of improving ventilation and filtration, reducing touch, creating physical barriers, um, things like reevaluating restrooms to prevent long lines, uh, keeping maintenance staff safe, and maintaining moderate humidity. And I think it's important to note that this document is still being updated. Um, They're planning to include future editions uh, with considerations for rehearsal and production, because uh, as you might have heard from that list, that is largely focusing on the house side of things as opposed to the backstage side of things. But kind of related to that, the Broadway League president, Charlotte St. Martin, is starting to feel cautiously optimistic about Broadway being back in 2021, thanks to the um, Broadway League's infectious diseases expert, approving a 15-second quick test for COVID-19 that will be available to actors and crew members. Uh, Now, again, this is still very early days, still making sure that this is going to make sense, but it is a good sign that there is thought being put into um, safety of performers uh, and crew members backstage. Um, another thing was uh, she was saying that older Broadway houses are going to receive updates to their HVAC systems before reopening to improve air filtration, as Lydia noted. And Actors' Equity recently approved two live shows in the Berkshires. Godspell and Harry Clark um, are set to begin in August with testing and limited audiences. Um, Performers and stage managers will be tested regularly for COVID-19, and audience members will be required to wear masks. Uh, For Godspell, the cast is isolating together in a house, and the production will take place under a tent with 100 socially distanced seats as opposed to the standard 700 seats um, of the main stage. And they're also taking precautions to limit the spread of the virus through singing by making sure that the performers are distant. 
And they also said it's going to be no contact, which is interesting because it's Godspell. So there is a crucifixion scene. So they're going to do that contactless. And also, also what I think is interesting, they are directing this production in a way that it is set in 2020 during the pandemic. It's very meta. So that production is outdoors. The other production, Harry Clark, is happening indoors, but it's also a solo show. So less sort of potential for disaster there in theory. Um, I, I just want to note that these are the first productions in which union actors will perform in person before paying audiences in the United States since the March shutdown. That is a huge deal. And it's also it's kind of encouraging to see that the union seems to have taken the lead in terms of the extensive safety requirements happening at these shows. Um, it's a reminder that unions are going to be important voices in future conversations about restarting live performances, at least those involving union artists and crew members. It does make me at least feel a little bit better about the safety of the people on stage whose needs are all too frequently put behind those of audience members. At least they have unions in their corner fighting for their their rights. But then there's also the question of, you know, despite all of these safety measures, despite the best intentions, will these events end up becoming spreader events like the virtual gala? What lessons are we actually going to be learning from them? There's so much that remains to be seen. Yes. In the New York Times story about this, the artistic directors leading both productions said that they couldn't really make peace with the summer without live performance in the Berkshires because it's such... Uh, it's so important to that region's economy, which gives me some pause kind of in the same vein as the Washington Ballet story. I just hope that these productions are able to to be as safe as possible and that this will um, ultimately be you know, a, a good decision. Well, and I think, you know, perfect frankness, a lot of what we're seeing in the United States right now is economic uh, decisions taking precedent over public health. Mm hmm. And which is why, as you said, Margaret, the fact that there are unions representing the artists in this in these cases uh, is an encouraging thing because we don't want to like we don't want to have to lose anyone else, and we don't want to have to set back theaters further by reopening and then having to shut down again because uh, no one benefits that way, and we super don't want that to happen at the expense of artists. So in our fourth segment, we'd like to lighten the tone a little bit because we need it. Um, so let's talk for a couple of happy minutes about Swan Lake Bath Ballet, which is a short film that came out this week. And on the surface, and as I was writing this little introduction, I realized, oh, I just punned without even intending to. On the surface, Didn't at you? least. Didn't you, Margaret? <laughs> I mean, my brain is just pre-programmed to, to pun, but... Um, <laughs> On the surface, at least, Swan Lake Bath Ballet is is exactly what it sounds like. It's a video featuring 27 A-list ballet dancers performing a contemporary take on Swan Lake, which is choreographed by Corey Baker, from their own bathtubs. Um, and when we first heard about this project, because there's a, a few stories that came out about it a couple of weeks ago, of course, it sounded great. But I think most of us assumed that it would be kind of deliberately silly. I mean, speaking of puns, like they just wrote themselves, like good, clean, fun, soapy romp, you know. Um, <laughs> but as it turns out, it's striking and sort of darkly beautiful. Not that it's devoid of humor, but there's some real there there. Yeah, um, the, this was a BBC commission, first of all. Um, and to me, the piece really encapsulated the beauty and determination and frustration of dance in quarantine. I mean, these are world class artists who are finding a way to continue making beautiful art. And it, it really demonstrates the expansive creativity that they have in spite of the confinement that they're experiencing spatially and in a sense, professionally, uh, 
because they can't, you know, be on a stage and work the way that they used to. And the, the project was really complex and innovative. Corey Baker made tutorial videos for the dancers to film themselves. Some of the dancers performed in colored water or took pillows apart to get feathers to dance in. So they really kind of became their own, I think, as they put it, uh, their own camera operators and stage managers and prop and costume designers, which I thought was really interesting. Well, and to that point, from a, like, a cinematography perspective, it's incredible. I was genuinely shocked to hear that they all shot their own scenes on their phones. On iPhones, yeah. I mean, because the choreography is extremely specific, very image-driven, and so getting the precise angle of the shot was so important to making that work. And on top of that, like, the lighting was great. Like, I don't know if there was some color correction happening in post-production or what, but, like, it looks, like, so fully produced. I genuinely am just just amazed that they managed to do this yeah i am um, i love there's a quote in the, in the guardian article that came out about it that Corey said when he was rehearsing the dancers over zoom initially he was working from his kitchen and then he realized that no he actually had to go into his bathroom and sit on the toilet because otherwise his movements would start to get too expansive like this is just the whole behind the scenes process sounds so incredible and the result it's like a little bit matthew bourne a little mm. bit, actually more than a little bit, Pina Bausch, like mm-hmm. even a little the, like Busby. the wet hair flinging. Oh, flinging. Yes. Yeah. So much wet hair flinging. But then it also has like inflatable pool swans and hands made to look like swan heads with eyes drawn on in marker. Like it has all of the things. I feel and like. And like, outdoor bathtubs. Where did, <laughs> how did that happen? I have questions. Uh, so many questions. All of the answers are in the video itself. Please go watch it. We will include a link in our episode description so you can enjoy this. Utterly bonker balls. Utter, utterly bonker ballsness. Sydney Sky Better, thank you for the word. <laughs> that tip. Um, so now we have the next installment in our voice memo series, um, which we're calling Dancer Dispatches, in which each week we ask a dance artist from a different corner of the world, dance world to share what they're working on and thinking about. This week, we have a message from Eduardo Villaro, who is the longtime leader of Ballet Hispanico. He was born in Cuba and raised in New York um, and was a dancer with Ballet Hispanico and Luna Negra Dance Theater in Chicago before he became Ballet Hispanico's artistic director in 2009. And then he also became its CEO in 2015. He has dedicated his career to developing opportunities and safe spaces for dancers of color. Here he is. Hello, Dance Edit listeners. This is Eduardo Valaro, the Artistic Director and CEO of Ballet Hispanico. At the moment, I am in my apartment in Irvington, New York, sitting on a wood chair with one of those little tables that your mom would fold over and turn into a fabulous um, TV night dinner special with a computer because we are no longer able to be at work or in Ballet Hispanico's beautiful studios. Ballet Hispanico has been affected by the pandemic. Um, like everyone else, we've had to close down our school, close down our company. Our company lost work. Um, we are down to a, a skeleton of, of a company to keep uh, our programs going virtually. I've been affected by this because I miss being around the things that make me happiest, which are the dancers, the students, the sounds, the music, the essence of what we love to do, which is create and produce dance. It's been a very difficult time. 
But we've gone on, you know, we've been very lucky because we were able to put together a digital platform, classes, and content, which is important for, for us and for me because our community is always stronger together. And so it is um, mine and the organization's focus to keep that connection with our, our constituents and our, 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 our family um, we, we hope to be back sometime, but right now, uh, it's really hard. It's really hard, um, dealing with this pandemic in so many ways. As an immigrant, uh, to this country from Cuba, I am so proud to be an American and so proud that this country took me and my family in when we needed another home, when we were running from our own oppression, um, but watching this country deal with this pandemic has been difficult um, and difficult because people are dying and we have people and leaders who want to push aside our elderly, our people of color and poor just for the sake of being able to have brunch outdoors or indoors, which I think is utterly ridiculous um, or, or not to or, or they, they want the ability to be not temporarily bothered by the use of a mask. So even though this is very difficult and dealing with with this um, conundrum, um, I am really even more committed to uh, making sure dance has a platform and a place in our society. Because one of the things I've seen is that online um, families have become um, even more active in dance. I see parents in TikTok dance with their children. I see uh, a, 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 a commitment again to moving together. And I, I think that's, um, that's a democratization of dance, which is so important because we have such issues in dance, as we all know. Uh, and it, it is so beautiful to see that there are these artists that are pushing the field even further um, because of connection, because of, of, of having that artistic voice seen, whether it be in a living room or outdoors in a garden, or on a beach, or in a water, or somewhere solitary. This um, is not about social distancing, this pandemic, um, and, and it has been about human distancing. And the arts are the only way to continue that human connection. And I'm so proud of the, the organization that I lead, and I danced for, and I became an artist with, which is Bali Hispanico, because we understand that need to connect. We understand that need to um, to voice our, our feelings at this moment. I want to say that dance is more important now than ever. And I continue to be inspired by those who are creative and continue to push our art form forward. We, as a community, as a dance community, need to work together to support each other at this moment. And we could do so not only by what we teach uh, and how we, we create work, but also how we use our vote, how we use our voices, and how we support all communities together, and particularly black and brown communities. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Eduardo, for sharing that with us. Um, please keep up with Eduardo and Ballet Hispanico on Instagram at Ballet Hispanico. The company is actually celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, and it's finding all these beautiful and creative ways to do that in the midst of a pandemic, um, including the ongoing Be Unidos video series that it has, and their accompanying watch parties to that. Um, and it also has a bunch of Hispanic Heritage Month celebrations coming up in September. You don't want to miss out on any of that, so be sure to follow them. Okay, thanks everyone for joining us this week. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Esboyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Dance Edit.